Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, Folks who listen to the show regularly know that one of my too many obsessions, I I can get a little spread thin sometimes with all the things I'm interested in, but one of them uh, is the idea of animism, uh, which is a, you know, somewhat problematic term that goes through anthropology and religious history, but basically uh, boils down to the question of how we think about the world as alive, the world being us, being animals, being plants, but also being streams, rocks, clouds, uh, technologies, um, and the possibility that thinking about liveliness uh, in these different domains with their own different rules, uh, uh, not just liveliness, but even agency, uh, even intelligence, is not only a uh, an idea that we can trace back to indigenous cultures, to really all of our pasts in terms of uh, the the kind of matrix of a living earth out of which uh, human culture and human consciousness emerged, uh, but also how these ideas can actually help us have insights about what's going on now, which is to say that there's a contemporary kind of animism, let's say a re-animism, that is uh, looking again at how these models are not uh, sort of uh, stuck within some kind of notion of a, of a pre-modern worldview, but in some ways are actually even more contemporary when we try to think about how agency is distributed through an ecological system. Or in the case of the conversation we're going to have today with our guest Monica Gagliano, how plants uh, not only can be, can be and should be seen as agents, with their making their own choices, with access to memory, with access to the ability to make choices and to uh, use their senses to build models of the world that they explore, reframe, uh, and modulate. But even further, the uh, uh, the more uh, sort of outlandish notion, notion that they can communicate with us and actually have been communicating with us in some sense all along. And again, we've had a number of people on the show talking about uh, this idea. Uh, One person that I always love to reference is, of course, Kat Harrison, uh, who runs Botanical Dimensions. And for those of you who are interested in these things, please check out Botanical Dimensions online. It's a wonderful organization in in Sonoma County. I just went up to their library sale uh, about a week ago, and it was a a wonderful time. And Kat uh, did a marvelous reading, and she's an an undersung hero, not just in the psychedelic world, but really in the whole world of ethnobotany and and really transforming our relationship to how we think about plants. And uh, it was through Kat that I first heard about Monica, although I had read about her in a New Yorker article many years ago, but I didn't remember the name. Um, and Monica's work is uh, as a plant biologist and really a plant behaviorist is is incredibly fascinating, but it doesn't stop there. And she's told her story in really one of the more remarkable crossover books between science and spirituality that I that I really have ever read that just came out called Thus Spoke the Plant. A Remarkable Journey of Groundbreaking Scientific Discoveries and Personal Encounters with Plants, wherein uh, Monica not only talks about some of the breakthrough research that she's done, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, but goes into very deep and very intimate detail about her more outlandish experiences, from at least from a um, conventional mainstream point of view, with communicating with plants, uh, plants in, 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 in the traditional context of 
a Amazonian dieta, but also just more uh, open-ended and informal rituals and, and, and establishing relationships with a number of different plant spirits that paradoxically, or not so paradoxically, actually inform some of her uh, scientific, rigorous scientific uh, uh, studies, which are controversial, but controversial in interesting ways, not so much about the organization of the sci- of the the studies themselves. I don't think there's actually been too much issue with the, uh, uh, the, the, the experiments themselves, but more about how they can be interpreted and how they can be uh, languaged. So I'm, I'm, I recommend the book, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to our conversation. So, Monica, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric, for having me. Great, great. Yeah, and I saw you speak at uh, Bioneers as well, and I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the vibe. And, and one thing I really appreciated because you know, and I'll be asking you these questions as well when we, we talk about, um, you know, you're, you, you, you know, you got a gig or you've had a gig, uh, you know, you, you are a recognized figure in, in, in certain zones within scientific practice. And some of the things you're talking about are, are really wild, even for people like me who are already very open to these ideas. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're going to go farther than I feel comfortable going. And I'm very open to this stuff. And I can only imagine, you know, and obviously many of your colleagues are not so open. And you talked about the element of courage at this point in time required for those of us who are open to these multiple dimensions of reality, uh, but who might otherwise hold down a kind of more conventional role in society. And usually people are kind of more circumspect about this, and you're being quite not circumspect. Uh, and I really admire that, and I, I, I want to uh, talk about that. But before we get into the kind of more mystical or, in my terms, animistic side of your story, I just want to talk about some of these remarkable studies that you did. And you know, they really blew my mind because, you know, even though I've been interested in, in indigenous models of, of an animated world for a very long time, and I know something about biology, not so much. I'm not, I'm not much of a green thumb. I, don't, my, I know more about uh, physics and mathematics and other factors of science. But, you know, I thought I was pretty up to it. But it wasn't until I read the book uh, Brilliant Green, like about a year and a half ago when I was at an ayahuasca retreat in, in, uh, in Brazil that my, my mind was blown because the, what the authors do, of that book do where they, they say, not only uh, can we see that plants communicate, plants perceive, plants make choices, plants have memories, but the, our refusal to acknowledge that in some sense they are agents, the way that we would describe not just a, a lion as an agent, but in some sense a uh, you know, a, a, even single-celled organisms make decisions, move around like, okay, they're kind of agents too, that, that it's actually our prejudices that, that, uh, that break our ability to recognize this agency. And the book was very good at like arguing down a lot of the usual responses that people have. It's like, well, plants are, okay, they're really good, but they're not agents. They, you know, they can't be, da da da, da. So I just want to start with some of the remarkable experiments that you've done that prove some of these uh, or, or suggest very highly that we should start thinking of plants as more intelligent and more agential uh, than we have um, in the past. I'm, so I don't know, we, we could talk about different ones, but maybe just the first one that for you felt like whatever your hunches were, you finally got you know, real evidence that something much deeper was going on and that we really had to start 
renegotiating our fundamental ideas of what plants are and how to think about them. So maybe you could just start with whichever one was did that for you. Well, I guess, you know, all of the experiments did that for me uh, because each one of them was a new adventure for me. I'm not uh, a plant biologist, so I'm an animal ecologist. So I actually don't know anything about plants in the terms of uh, what modern biology in, for plants uh, requires. So I don't know uh, about their physiology, their genetics, their molecular story. And quite frankly, I'm not particularly interested in either <laughs> in the sense that um, that for me is uh, kind of counterproductive at this time in, in the sense that we know already plenty and enough and, uh, and yet we have missed uh, the organism as a whole, which is more what ecologists do. And, um, and in that sense, so being an animal ecologist was an advantage because uh, my mind was that of a child that, you know, doesn't know anything and goes and learn and plays. But at the same time, of course, I wasn't naive and I had all the theoretical uh, framework that we have deployed over so many species of animals and quite successfully and, and refined it over so many decades. So then for me, it was just a matter of uh, pretty much asking the same question using the frameworks that we have and we have well accepted. And um, so I guess the, the really first big surprise for me uh, was the very first experiment I did because of course, not being a, a plant biologist, I had no idea. <laughs> and so I created these, um, I, I do describe them in the book as well. I created what I call these matrioska boxes. And the, the aim of the, of the experiment, which was uh, looking at chili uh, seed and seedlings, was simply to see whether the communication channels that we already know plants use uh, were all there was to know. <laughs> And, um, and it was, again, to my surprise that when I started um, sort of entering this area, I realized that actually there was people already looking into this for plants. And that was incredible. That was great. And, uh, and most of the work done was in the chemical communication, which, of course, now is quite well established and lots of people is working on it. And it's typical of science. It's like the first uh, icebreaker is the heart and then everyone else follows and, and then it becomes like the normal status quo thing. So um, yes, of so chemical communication, both underground and on, you know, on the aerial part of the plants, incredible stuff. And I was like, wow. And then of course, I mean, light and plants have a long history. And uh, so there was a lot of work already done as well on how plants use different frequencies of light and different ratio of frequency of light to determine basically what's happening around them, whether it's like, oh, here's a, here's a fence, uh, and if I'm a climber, I can use it. Or, oh, here is someone growing next to me, and actually they're growing a bit too fast, and if I don't change my growth trajectory, I might get, you know, COVID over and, and I die because I don't get access to light. So those were, like, again, quite, um, quite well accepted and sort of common ground. And there was a third one that I found that it was, again, in that realm. And it was how plants communicate uh, through contact. And so if roots touch each other on the ground, or, or now we also know the, the canopy of trees, they seem to have a very good mechanism to 
kind of work themselves out and work themselves out in space so that they don't impinge on each other. Or if they choose to do so, there are particular reasons why they would do that. So it wasn't just random. So those were basically the three main channels which were well accepted and known as plants communicate this way. And, uh, and of course, because as I said, I'm an animal ecologist and coming from that perspective, it's like, wow, but there is so much more. We know from animals that there is so much more. And one of the things that comes to mind straight away is, of course, sound. Because the acoustics is everywhere, no matter where you are. And, um, and we have studied it in animals across all areas, all species, all environments. And so I so, thought, oh, wow. But of course, that was just an idea. And so uh, my first experiment were actually, was actually designed to test whether the three channels that we knew of, the chemical, the contact, and the light, were actually really the end of the story or not. So the question is, are there other ways in which plants would know that there is, for example, someone growing next to them? And so I didn't actually pose, oh, I'm going to test whether this is the channel that the plant is using, but more like, is there a channel, another channel that the plant is using? And of course, um, the answer is yes. And at that time, of course, I, scientifically speaking, I didn't have any proof to show what it was. But the proof was clear that something is happening and the plant definitely is doing something here. At that time, I was already starting to work with um, you know, other plants such as the ayahuasca and uh, and from that perspective, which of course I kept very separate from my scientific uh, personality and, and character and environment, uh, but from that perspective it was like, but of course, <laughs> but of course they do. And so it started really nagging at me as, a, as an idea. How would science um, try to test this? It might be just all in our minds, and that's okay. I'm happy with that. You know, it's a nice idea, and I'm happy with that. But it was like, okay, for me, the role of science is to uh, explore, not research, but explore. And so can we explore this question and see where we end up? And so that's how I then started, you know, getting a bit more focused onto, okay, there is a channel that... Or many channels maybe the plants are using, which we do not know about, could acoustic would be one of those. And then, you know, we proceeded again into exploring and developing that area in particular. But more, since then, I actually bumped into other uh, channels, <laughs> which, um, again, bumped is the right word because I was not testing for that. I wasn't expecting that. But I do know that from my experiment, I can see the plants detect uh, magnetic fields and they're very sensitive to them too and uh, and they will make their choices based on what's available at different levels so different fields coexisting obviously different channels providing different bits of information obviously and the plants are just literally as we do and as animals do picking and choosing whatever suits them best at that particular context in that particular time so that was for me the start and it was one of those kind of situations where um, your personal experience tells you one thing and you go in the lab or in, you know, at the university and, and you're like, how on earth am I going to do this? Uh, how do you ask the question in, in the most appropriate way so that it doesn't bias the answer that I think I'm looking for? 
So there's, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just asking a question. And then the answer is whatever answer wants to be. And so, yeah, so that was interesting because I kind of did it almost like a, as a wild test for myself. And when I saw, oh, no, they can do it, it was like, uh, okay, so are you ready to embark into this a bit deeper now? And, uh, and that's where we end up. Look at what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's really remarkable. And, and I was, you know, I was trying to get a sense by reading about your work online and poking around about how just the, the you know, the, 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 the experiments have been received in the sense that there's a lot, been a lot of controversy about the language around them and how to interpret what these decisions and what these perceptual channels indicate. So there'll be people who don't like the idea of intelligence, who think that's anthropomorphism. And that's, that's, another, that's, that's a discussion that's interesting to have. But leaving that one aside, is there much controversy about the core sort of pragmatic, you know, on empirical evidence that they use these channels, that they have forms of memory that we hadn't really, you know, the, the remarkable uh, experiment that, that shows their Pavlovian uh, capacity to essentially remember different conditions and change their responses based on these and then in a way make decisions about responses. There's not a lot of controversy about th that stuff, is there? No, and you know, um what people doesn't really uh, appreciate, like even within the academia, I guess, is that as an animal ecologist moving to a different field, these fields are often traditionally left very separate and alone. And academia is uh, quite divided into these little pockets of knowledge. So we do not cross. If you cross, why? <laughs> it will be the first question. Like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> and uh, so... So that already kind of raises suspicion. It's like uh, you're not qualified to speak about this thing or to speak to this. And uh, so the only thing that we have as scientists, at least for me, is our data. I don't need to speak to anything. My data can speak to, any, to, to anything, actually. And uh, so what happened with my science is that I actually, when I started doing the plant experiment, I was very aware that I, I know being a plant person, uh, I'm not qualified. So I actually used even more controls and increased the sample size even further than I would normally know, uh, know, know how to um, evaluate. And, and it would be it, actually the experiments are a little bit overdone <laughs> in the sense that they are even more than what it would be necessary normally. And, uh, and yet, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the problem was uh, never the data as such. It was always like what the data are insinuating. What are they pointing at? And uh, which reminds me a little bit of, um, I think it's a Buddhist say, you know, uh, don't look at the finger pointing. You're, you're looking at the finger pointing at the moon, but we're actually after the moon, not the finger. So, so yeah, and their first experiments with the chilies and the, and the communication channels, uh, it's a good example. Uh, all the others are, but this one is a good example because, of course, I wasn't expecting that kind of reception. <laughs> so that paper, for example, when it went out, the editor that handled it uh, sent it out for review, which is the normal process, and uh, two or three people usually read it. There are other academics, in the, uh, specialists in the area, and they give feedback, and you adjust accordingly, and then the paper usually is moving on, unless there is some real flaw or, or some real issue. So 
the the editor sent it out. I received my reviewers. I addressed the reviewers, and it was quite straightforward. So I thought, oh, cool, you know, <laughs> no problems. And then instead, usually, what would happen next is the editor would say, like, "Congratulations, the paper you are, you addressed the the question that the reviewers had, and the paper is in." And instead, we received new reviewers, and I was like, "What?" These are new people. And so the editor sent it to new people to review it. Of course, everyone's got new questions, new ideas. And so we thought that that then was the end of it. It went through seven different reviewers. And the the editor just, and I understand, is like uh, the editor didn't have the courage. And it goes to to what you started talking about uh, at the beginning. It didn't have the courage to take the responsibility of, as the editor, it is my responsibility to evaluate whether this is good science or not. If the reviewers have no problem and they, they are, you know, I need to trust that they are colleagues. I, I chose them because I believe they are good people. They know how to do their science. And so I had to take the responsibility that, yeah, this paper needs to be published. And he was afraid. He was afraid because not of the data, because of course the data were clear. Uh, there is something going on here and we don't know what it is. And uh, that was the problem. It's like, we don't know what it is. And science tend to publish things that this is what it is. And, uh, and I didn't have that answer. And I didn't care not having that answer. I just, uh, I was excited that there was something that we didn't know. And so it was opening a door to explore again. But um, I thought that uh, that was quite insightful. And at the time, I didn't realize that that would be something that would happen over and over again with my work. And it would escalate as well to the point that people would not send it out for review in the first place. So the work didn't have a chance to be actually evaluated by my colleagues. And whenever it did, and that was the case with Mimosa that Michael Pollan reported on, like that paper took me so long to actually get to someone to see it. You know, the reviewers would not even be asked to review. The editors would make that call. So like, we don't publish these things. And it's like, what things? Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's, it took me a while. You know, I've been interested in issues of kind of parascience and how science um, manages its borders and what we mean by science. And, I, you know, I've been thinking about that stuff, you know, not totally uh, technically, but, you know, for a long time. But it still took me a long time to realize the way that data, there's a tendency to reject concrete data if, it, if the data implies something that's maybe not explicitly stated in the article, but it implies something that goes against the axiom that runs the scientific model, which is a funny way to do science if you really think about it. So it's not like you go... Okay, I'm just take a wild example. Let's let's say you had data that showed some kind of uh, I don't know characteristic of uh, Leos, you know, as, who had astrological sign of Leo, and then you sh- you had a robust large sample that showed that they were unusually represented as actors or something like that. I don't know, you know, some example like that, where the whole the the move that most scientists faced with that would be is they wouldn't even bother looking at the data. They would just assume that it's an artifact of some kind of, you know, bad data, bad statistics, because we know that there's no way that 
time or the planets or whatever it is can influence because there's no mechanism to explain that influence. So therefore, we can just ignore everything. And it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't that people were really contesting data. I mean, sometimes they are, but there's a lot of stuff that's just de facto kind of pushed away. And, you know, you got to really to really experience that in, a, you know, kind of first firsthand. But are, are you are you done with that? Are, are you are you kind of like I mean, you you alluded a little bit in your in your talk at Bioneers, you know, you're closing up the office, uh, moving to Sydney. Wasn't clear whether you're maintaining or even trying to maintain a, a kind of conventional university research position. Um, and so, if that's the case, I'd love to hear like how you decided to go into that other direction rather than continuing to fight what must be sometimes an extremely frustrating uh, and, and, you know, socially awkward, at the very least, uh, kind of fight? Well, um, okay, so here is the story. <laughs> the story is that uh, I didn't choose anything. Uh, when I had a big grant from the federal government at the university where I was in Perth, and um, which was gonna, you know, the, the main scope of the grant was the bioacoustics of plants. And um, <laughs> it was already incredible for some colleagues. It was already like, what did she do to get this grant? As if I had to go pay people, you know? <laughs> and I just applied, applied like we do with everything else, you know? But um, so got the grant and when the fellowship ran out, that grant covered both my salary, my research, everything. So basically, um, and that's how they work. The university is the host. So the grant from the government goes through the university system. The university administered the grant, but the money is your funding. So when the funding ran out, uh, that's when I closed the door of my office and, and I disappeared because there was nothing for me left. Yeah. You know, like, uh, and no, I'm not, um, I should clarify this. I'm not the victim of the system. When I closed that door, because there was nothing for me left there to do, uh, that last six months and also the last, that last year, my entire environment and like uh, at work was becoming so, so alien and so uh, claustrophobic really. There was no real exchange with anyone. There was no uh, collegial um, conversation, and I was starving. So I guess uh, that closing down actually was probably the most beneficial thing that could ever happen to my career because it forced me to, like, this environment is not serving you anymore, and you need to move on. And, yeah. of course, you know, and now it sounds very graceful, as I say. It sounds like, oh, I managed so well. <laughs> I did, and of course, I had a moment of like, oh, no. And now I lost my job, you know? And, and I tried to, you know, to be positive, and I applied for a few positions. But again, because, as I said, um, the knowledge is so compartmentalized <laughs> uh, that you... Um, if you cross boundaries, you don't belong anywhere. So when I was applying for this job, literally, I think people didn't know what to do with my CV. It's like, well, what is she? Is she an animal ecologist? Is she a plant person? If she's a plant person, what is this stuff? So, so I failed miserably with the, with the search of a new job. 
And basically, I was unemployed for three years. And uh, this only changed last week when I moved to Sydney because the University of Sydney actually is employing me now. I do have uh, an independent grant that has been you know, administered by the university. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's hilarious, really, from, uh, you know, when you see the story in hindsight, it's hilarious because uh, now I'm actually at an even better university than I was at. Uh, Sydney is much more uh, central. There is a lot of people here. Uh, over the last three years, they've been bringing me back and forth to give lectures and to participate to different workshops. And, and the environment here, the collegial environment that I was so desperately lacking in the other place, here is like uh, when I arrived, people was like, oh, finally you're here. Oh, it's going to be so good. And we're going to do all of these things. And, uh, and not only from the other disciplines, which might be easier, you know, for the humanity to say that. But I, even from my colleagues, my new colleagues, they are here as other biological scientists. They're like, oh, it's going to be so much fun. Oh, and we could do a project together on this. And so suddenly there is that spark of life, <laughs> um, which is essential. You know? But I also understand that that initial process of um, compression, really, it was required because um, in the story of this, uh, I think that without that moment of, are you going to be serious about this? Are you going to be able, are, are you going to commit yourself and do it no matter what? Uh, and the answer was yes, including like losing everything, including losing my career, which of course meant losing my identity, like as the scientist and also questioning everything. Like, so what are you? Who are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course that uh, gift I wouldn't exchange it for anything because it will, it forced me to find me. And, uh, and in the process of writing the book, uh, I also had to find, uh, me through that new character of the scientist that is not afraid. Right. The scientist is going to just speak what it needs to be said without having to play too much. The little game that we play, you yeah. know, the protecting an identity that, it's a, it's just a character that I wear and I'm just a person, you know. Well, when when you say all that and you talk about the courage and you talk about being aware of the identity that's bound up with your previous position and how you had to, you know, when I when I when you say those things, I also hear someone who's experienced with ayahuasca or experienced with deep medicine work because whatever else you want to say about it and however you want to put it into a multidimensional cosmos or just talk about it psychologically, that doesn't matter. But on one level, you, ha you have to start to break down. You have to have courage. You have to be willing to risk, in a way, your sanity. You certainly yeah. have to be willing to risk letting go of, of an identity position. So I'm really hearing a very interesting way one of the ways in which your your work with plants in that context has allowed your career to move. But of course, yeah. th there's even more kind of remarkable ones that you talk about in your book in terms of actually getting specific messages from plants and not necessarily ayahuasca, but actually you dieted you know, in a more traditional way with other plants that aren't explicitly psychoactive, which most Westerners who enter these traditions don't ever do. They just stick with the 
the razzle dazzle. And, you know, you were yeah. like, no, I'm going to diet with these other guys too and work with the guy who was like working on that. And so you really, you really went, went deep with that. Uh, and you got some messages that helped with, with your work. And, um, you know, which is always remarkable, you know, Jeremy Narby was writing about like, how can we figure out, let's have scientists do this stuff. Maybe they're going to get messages. And you seem to be an example of someone who did. And um, so could you just tell a little bit about what the, uh, a little bit about the plant spirit that you were dieting with that gave you a very particular insight for one of your experiments? Yeah, well, um, I think that the most uh, obvious and the most spectacular for me, uh, it was the Ayahuma from the Amazon. And this is also known as the, as the cannonball tree, and uh, which is an amazing tree. It's got sh- like shining, beautiful flowers. But of course, the fruit is the one that gives it the Monica. And uh, because it does look like a, a kind of cannonball <laughs> and um and yeah and uh, i ended up um going back to the amazon uh, not really wanting to <laughs> but at that stage by that stage this was much later you know um by that stage i understood that when the plant says this is what we do i do <laughs> so i thought okay we're going back to peru i really don't want to go back there but fine and uh, so I found myself uh, in the Pucallpa area and, um, and eventually, you know, I had this uh, interview kind of thing with this old man, Akokama man, and, uh, and I went and worked with him for, a, for, a, for several weeks. And, uh, and I actually started dieting a different plant. It was the Pinon Blanco. And of course, I didn't know any about anything about these plants in advance because I just go and I just allow the elder, the you know, the curandero to, you know, he can evaluate and decide what he thinks I need. So I totally surrender to their knowledge and their, you know, their ability to evaluate, which might be not a good thing, but I do. <laughs> and um, and so he he started me on the Pinon Blanco and within two days I had this very clear dream of this plant and, uh, and the plant spirit presented itself in my dream as a doctor. And he had, he was carrying this um, strange thing in his hand, which during my dream, I couldn't work out what it was. So I then in the morning, I just described it to my um, curandero and he was like, oh, I know exactly what it is. Oh, this is what the plant is saying that you're going to be dieting. This is the plant that you've come to diet for. And so I'm like, okay, whatever that means. And um, so, you know, then I ended up obviously uh, starting the dieta with the Ayahuma. And, uh, and Ayahuma was a very interesting um, spirit because um, it was very kind of playful for me. It felt very playful. And he had so much to say, <laughs> so much so that it wasn't, um, yeah, I was finding myself writing in my diary and I only keep diaries when I travel. And so I was finding, finding myself writing, but as if someone was dictating. And so I was just writing down, watching what was coming onto the page. And at one point I even started drawing these uh, sketches, which were not like just, uh, oh, here's a leaf or no, they were like pipes and uh, dimensions. And, you know, so it was very clear that what I was drawing was some kind of setup that I needed to build for an experiment. And, uh, and the funny thing, that's why I say the Ayahuma for me was playful, because the funny thing is that that 
experiment, which will become famous as the Pavlovian P, the Pavlovian experiment. Uh, that experiment, I was trying to do it using my own mind, <laughs> uh, you know, the year before. And I was going to use uh, sunflowers. And uh, I had the perfect setup, as I described as well in the book. I had the perfect setup. We built this, you know, contraption. And I thought, oh, this is good. It's going to work. And there was actually no reason why it shouldn't have worked, but it didn't. And so then fast forward a few months later, I'm finding myself in the jungle in the middle of who knows where uh, with this plant. And, uh, and the plant is almost like giggling and saying like, and by the way, no sunflowers, peas. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, of course, I came back home. I booked up the, the space and I started building what I was given. And of course, the plants to be used was the peas. And, um, and it was amazing because the, the work with uh, Ayauma was uh, incredible while I was in the jungle, but also all the way through. It's almost like the, the plants was there, present, supervising, <laughs> even when I was in the lab. And, and, uh, and it gave me a very, really real good sense of uh, when we say, you know, oh, I worked with this plant and... And, you know, people often, especially with ayahuasca and others, but um, there is a tendency of like, oh, I go back for more. I go back for more, which is fine. But also understanding that, um, at least for me, my understanding is being like, oh, I am the plant. Like the plant has been incorporated in the sense that I ingested it. I ingested the body and now that is in here. And so when I go in the lab uh, now, I kind of find like I have a lot of research assistants with me <laughs> because uh, at different times, different plants will um, kind of emerge and I know how they feel. So I know who it is. And so the Ayahuma was in my lab while I was doing the experiments within me. And, uh, and it was interesting because, um, you know, she's known as the, the plant of the mind, and uh, so, it, of course, it would, it would work on my mind, but also would work on the experiment that would be kind of quintessential to bring the question of the mind in the context of plants. And, uh, and it, it's, uh, it just, I find it hilarious how good <laughs> these links, and you, you don't even see them until, you know, even now, I'm realizing this right now as I'm speaking to you, it's like, oh, my God. Uh, the, the plant, the quintessential plant for the mind is using my mind to show the minds of plants. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, so. is a, that is a wonderful, wonderful loop. But I, I want to ask you something. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I, again, I'm, I've been very interested in these kinds of experiences for a long time, both in my own life, but other people's lives and trying to understand how people interpret them, particularly when... They're not just living in a mystical world all the time, but they're working with with reason, with science, or with skepticism, or what does it mean to be, you know, questioning thought. And yeah. both in your when you when you speak and in the book, you're very um, confident about the messages that you get. You, it's like it's like it's no problem for you. And in my experience, um, most people aren't really like that. Uh, most people are either more skeptical, even if they get a message, they're like, I don't know, what is I making it up? I'm not sure if you ask them. Or they're very sure, but they're kind of, I don't want to say deluded, but they're kind of like, they're telling themselves a story. 
I don't believe that those are the only categories because I do believe that some people are very good at getting messages, just the way some people have a remarkable dream life. Some people have the capacity to under, you know, to anticipate things. You know, I believe that those things can can occur. But what I'm interested with you is whether. You were always like that? Like if you go back when you were a kid, you were kind of like getting mess, you know, that you always had this kind of dream side or sort of side of you that wasn't just, wasn't limited by reason or wasn't limited by skepticism, even though you obviously can play that game as a scientist. Was it always part of you? Was it something you had to kind of learn through through your work with the plants? Uh, or did it was it just kind of obvious to you and you didn't really have to worry about it? Well, um, again, in hindsight, it's easy to see, but while you're in the midst of that, uh, it's not always so graceful and so confident. But, um, you know, if I think about it now, where, and, and you're right, uh, because of this phase of unemployment and I had a lot of time to really consider who I am, uh, I, you're right, I, I feel there is a level of, um, there is a core inside me that, it's not going to be moved, you know, or it's going to be moved, but uh, not by the things that, uh, that don't matter. <laughs> um, but um, so now I'm able, now because I'm, I'm, I can see myself from this space, I'm able to see that I was always that, you know. And so, yes, I was always the child that um, would, you know, rescue the pigeon out of the road because he got driven over by the car and, you know, nurse the pigeon until it was all right, and then you release it, or, you know, those kind of things. I, you know, I was born in Italy, which is uh, the quintessential, you know, Catholic country, and so if you want a place where you get brainwashed, that's one of those. <laughs> and um, and I was really interested. I used to go to church, and I was really interested, but I was interested in asking questions, and, uh, and I got really uh, annoyed when, uh, and this is like when I was a child, and I was really annoyed when the priest or whoever didn't have the answers. And they were telling me, like, you should just have faith. And he's like, yeah, but if I don't understand what faith is, how can I have faith? <laughs> and uh, so I think that my um, essence has always been the one of, you know, exploring uh, what I saw was an obvious enchantment. And... Um, so it's like, wow, like, how can you not want to explore this and, uh, and just trying to play with it? And so I guess uh, science came about to me as exactly that, as a channel to be able to explore disenchantment. And then, of course, um, because this is a space of duality and the, the polarity of enchantment is disenchantment. So I needed to become, at some level, disenchanted. And I did that through my training with science, obviously, where I ended up not feeling anything anymore. So I was the child that was uh, rescuing the pigeon from the street because it got run over. And then you fast forward 20 years later, and I'm in a scientific lab ripping apart the body of a fish so that I can get my data. So, you know, I needed to feel so deeply and then feel nothing to be able to know what it means to be both. So to, to be able to know, okay, these are the two polarities that make this reality. And yet I'm none of the two. I can choose to be one of the two, but then I would always know that I'm missing the other. <laughs> or I can just sit in the middle 
and knowing that I can uh, see both, but I don't have to be both either. And, uh, and this is, I think, the place where I'm at. So that's why I can see my character as the scientist, but I can also bring the, the more compassionate approach to science, which comes from the other side. And, um, and so now I'm in a place where I, th I think I can comfortably do science without compromising science as the scientific method that acquire knowledge. So it's not that I need to be, uh, you know, fluffy, hippie, new agey to do my science because that wouldn't work because that's not how science works. So when I do my science, I apply uh, the proper methodology that is uh, the rule of the game. But the way in which I ask the questions in my science uh, might be coming from a different side of the story. And, uh, and if the questions are formulated correctly, then we can actually find answers that can speak to both sides. And that, I think one of the major teachings for me from my work with the plants over the decade is, uh, is being very clear. It's like, uh, unless we ground here the teachings from over there, we are having a nice entertainment time and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but know that that's what you're doing. For me, for my character, it was very clear that, and the plants would not let me get away with it. So, you know, <laughs> things will fall apart and break apart if I didn't. So it was part of my training, I guess. Um, yeah, like for me, it's uh, an essential part of like bringing, anchoring this kind of otherworldly, if we want to call it knowledge, into this world. So that the two polarities are no longer polarities that are separate, but they can be merged and even transcended. And I guess the attempt with the book is exactly that, to, to show that a scientist can be a highly mystical person. And uh, it's not that the scientist has gone crazy. It's just that maybe the scientist was never just the scientist. At the end of the book, you know, you, you, you've told some remarkable stories about experiences with, with ritual, with... Um, uh, the the conversations with plants and and sort of having this engagement. And I got to say, from from my situation, I know those experiences are real. I've had my own versions of them, but they don't they don't necessarily speak to me that directly. Like I'm like, where did this ritual come from? Why are you doing this thing from West Africa? Da da da. But at the end of the book, you have a your final big chapter is about an experience that you had at, at Muir Woods, which I partly like because I live near the Muir Woods and I love those trees and I can imagine it. And you were, you know, you were at Bioneer, so it's like part of this is my world or part of my world. Uh, but it's a really remarkable experience that I think will resonate with listeners who maybe who haven't worked as much with plants, but are very interested in this idea of of a glitch in perception, which is a, a phrase you even use. So I'm just wondering if you could just tell that story or what it was that happened to you and how that portal opened up some deep uh, insights for you. Mm. Well, yeah, that story uh, still lingers because, um, of course, there is a part of me that can totally explain it and there is another part that's like, what? <laughs> but basically, uh, there was uh, a few years ago, it was the first time I came to Bioneers, actually, and uh, I had such an amazing time and, uh, you know, I was so full and it was towards the end of my trip. I only had a few more days left before coming back to Australia. And I thought, oh, I really want to just go to the forest and just uh, walk around. And kind of it was my giving thanks ritual of like, oh, Mary, I received so much. I'm so grateful. And I just want to do this. So I went to Mere Woods. 
And, uh, and of course, the first thing I did is like, I arrived and there was like these uh, bus loads of people. And I was like, oh, no, I was imagining that I would be in the forest on my own. And instead, it's like there's all these people taking pictures, and which, of course, is right at the entrance of the park. As soon as you walk a little bit further, everyone disappears. So it's like, oh, excellent. So basically, I was walking along the track. I was on my own. And, uh, and all I, um, at one point, I, got, I arrived at this intersection. And just before that, I decided to take my shoes off because I really wanted to feel the, the ground under my feet. And I went, especially in summer here in Australia, I often walk without shoes. So it's nothing really special that I did in that moment. But, uh, but I, it was uh, important for what happened because... Um, Basically, I found myself walking along this path. I crossed over the creek on this little bridge thing. And, um, and I was in this path. There was one of those that is kind of like the size of one person at the time. So, you know, if, you, if someone comes from the opposite direction, you kind of have to put yourself sideways and then let them pass. Or, and so it was very clear that I was walking in one particular direction. And at one point along the path, there was a little puddle of water. And because I was barefoot, I remember stepping my feet in the water and kind of like, you know, like a child splashing a bit. And I thought, oh, cool, you know, I can, there is also water here. And I was just, um, I don't know, I was just walking. I found this uh, beautiful tree amongst the many beautiful trees there. And I sat underneath it and I just did a little, a little bit of um, my little giving thanks ceremony. I had a little ocarina and I played it and... And it was very, the, the, the experience itself during that moment was very magical. And, you know, it's detailed more in the book. But basically, when I finished that, and I felt, okay, now I'm ready to, to go back, um, I looked along to this little track that I was walking on, that I, I had been walking on, and I, I just, curiosity say kills the cat. And like, I don't know if I go, if my cat got killed, but something definitely happened because I was, there was a choice to be made, basically. It's like either you carry on walking along the path and you go further along that path, or you turn around and you go down the path where you came from. And so I chose to follow the path a little bit further because the path kind of disappeared under the hill, behind the hill. And I just wanted to see, just, okay, I just walk up that hill, see what's behind it, and then I come back. So that's what I was doing. I was walking forward, to, like, along the same direction that I had been walking when I arrived. And uh, I have no idea still how, but I found myself with my feet in the puddle of water again. And, uh, and I was a little disorientated because I knew that I never turned around and walked down the path. I was walking up the hill. So how is it possible that now I'm in the water and my feet are in the, puddle of, in the same puddle of water that I saw coming upwards and I'm facing the, the wrong direction, you know, I'm facing the exit. And um, so there was that moment of like, what's going on here? But I didn't really, I didn't really register. It's almost like my body knew that I had been somewhere else for a while and came through back out of the door again. And so I don't know how to explain. And definitely as a scientist, I have no idea. But, uh, but the experience for me was 
kind of clear that I've been through, I had been through a portal of some sort and the water was the vehicle that made the interface between these two realities, yeah. maybe. Well, one of the things about that story I, I really like is that it, it reminds me of a quality that, that's often the case with some of the more persistent and interesting anomalies is that they're not necessarily, you know, these huge, spectacular, bizarre... In fact, the more bizarre they are, the, or at least the more, like, overwhelmingly yeah. uh, 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 extreme they are. And you're like, okay, you know, maybe, sure, you know, I don't know. But the ones that have always affected me when I read them or talk to them or the, to other people, and, and in my own case, it, once, or, once or twice, there's something kind of a little... Uh, humble or just sort of they're right over here but the more you think about them you realize that you can't help but there's nowhere to put them and then they force you to keep going and and what i love about the story in the book um is that it also opens up it, it kind of it launches you into some of my favorite passages in this book sometimes your book is very poetic and mystical sometimes it's very concrete and scientific um, but the, the, the thoughts that you have here, I found, uh, you know, particularly remarkable, at least they, they stuck with me. And I want to read a, a, a few lines, uh, that, that you write about, cause you kind of talk about space and time. And there's this really mm-hmm. interesting reflection on time that gets us back around to this question of nature. So we don't have a few minutes left, but we can squeeze it is. <laughs> When the, when the redwood for, what the redwood forest and the Muir Woods had revealed was that the Earth's embrace grounds us all within this shared timescape, and it is precisely through this grounding that the gates to other dimensions of reality open. In other words, the awareness of this coherent background, the background of nature, m- marks a steady reference position, the true point of departure to realize our capacity to move in and around the reference itself, time. And it is against this coherent backdrop that we can be alerted of the serendipitous occurrence of flawless incongruities, which is a wonderful phrase, perfect glitches whose arrival allows for other dimensional potentialities to to be perceived at all. It seems, paradoxically, that our departure from and arrival to are exactly the same place. And, and as it had been the case for me with my puddle of muddy water in the forest, we may only understand our departure once we realize our arrival. To me, that's just like top-notch mystical weirdness. And, and, uh, <laughs> but, but what I like about it in the context of our conversation now is it helps answer this very interesting question, which is, what do we say about nature, about the nature that is revealed to us through science— not so much our mystical experiences or indigenous interactions, but the science that gives us a, Dar- Dar- you know, a Darwinian per- picture of evolution where things emerged over eons of time. And, and you know, in a way, I'm, I, I, you know, in, often in your book, you kind of speak as a Darwinist. You, you do recognize that there are these selection pressures, that that kind of language, which is so often anti-enchantment, is one that you embrace, but you embrace it in relationship to this multidimensionality. Uh, and that, to me, is, is a real, very important place for us to articulate now. So, so we don't collapse one into the other. It's not like we're saying that science is actually mysticism. It's that mm-hmm. the mystical view is a 
broader domain. So I, I guess I just want to hear you talk a little bit more. We only have a couple minutes, but about how how you see you know the the nature that we all that that science recognizes the nature that that is articulated through a, a Darwinian perspective through through a, a, a you know materialist way of of talking about it from that multi-dimensional side. I think it's uh, for me it's pretty simple. The they're like just as we're talking about multiple perspective and multi-dimensional spaces. Well, the Darwinian is just one of many. And uh, they, there is no one better than or exclusion of. It's like uh, they are not in conflict. They're just coexisting. And so there are parts and aspects of each one of those that can be useful in the sense that by approaching, we reveal who we are. And then we can also let it go because we know that. We know that we are all of the others as well. And so I don't have a conflict. And that's, I think, may, maybe is the main point of my book. It's like uh, there is no conflict between science and what we call mysticism, spirituality, or whatever we want to call it. It's like, uh, and, but at the same time, yes, science is not mysticism, but it is. <laughs> So uh, it's just that it's um, it's an it's an, an exercise of removing these um, uh, dogmatic and you know dualistic view of the world. The world is not dual; it's multiple, and at the same time, because of that, it's nothing. And uh, it was actually um, a plant that only a few months ago, just before I came back from Bio- to Bionias this year, uh, that brought me all the way to Mexico. And he brought me into a dark room. And I spent a, lot, a long time in this dark room on my own with nothing else to do except being there. And, uh, and I saw the amazing world of ideas that we can use to play in this space. So that's my, and I express this through my science, but it's not very different from what a musician does or a painter does. And I'm both, I'm all of those two. So, and at the same time, I also saw the absolute, ridiculously empty nothingness that we are and so I'm still all of it you know and in that sense how to translate that into this reality which is the one that we are kind of keeping fixed by reference points as you mentioned from reading the book that's all we are just uh, we're just um, considering some reference points more important than others but just you know, they're arbitrary, all of them. Yeah. So I don't see the conflict. Great. Well, I think that's actually part of what makes you a, a wonderful exemplar and also probably annoys some of your uh, critics is that you're not conflicted. You're not like, oh, well, I feel this thing, and da, 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 which is wonderful. But we're going to have to end it with this note. It was just a wonderful conversation. Uh, Monica Gagliano, Thus Spoke the Plant. Uh, please check it out. It's, it's, it's a great book. And uh, good luck on your, uh, on your future endeavors. I'm glad your career worked out. Thank you so much, Eric. And oh. thank you for having me. Sure, sure. Okay, folks, till next week, keep your minds open. 